Welcome back to podcast number four. We have our third Gay Awakening story coming up for you. We are sitting down with Andy, a fantastic rabbi. I actually uh, met her through another rabbi that was very helpful to me and my family. And he was like, you should, you should meet her. She has an artistic past. She's a really cool rabbi. And I was like, yeah, it's very rare to find a female rabbi in general, let alone someone part of the rainbow community. So I actively was like, I need to seek her out. And then I found out that my brother attended like preschool here years ago. So now I know that my mom has walked these halls and it's even more special to me to be here. So really excited to sit down with you and um, ask you some fun questions here. So, since this is a podcast focusing on our movie, I would love to hear some of your favorite films, and whether LGBT or just normal films that have been like a big part of your life. My most favorite film that, uh, and it's ironic, I'm, I'm always worried about confessing that I love this film because there's no females in it, but it's Shawshank Redemption. And the only female is the, you know, former wife who dies like after five seconds. <laughs> but I love this movie, and I don't know why. Maybe in a past life I was in prison. Did you watch it to comfort you or, like, to, like, step out? Or, like, like what was the reason you went to the film, and is this a film you rewatch? Oh, yeah. So I think I went to the film just because it was – it lost to Forrest Gump that year. It was back in the 80s. And uh, I liked Forrest Gump, but for some reason I always like to watch the also ran. So I went to see Shasha, and I'm like, oh, my God, this is such a great movie. Yeah. Um and I think I'd also read the um, Stephen King short book. He had like a, it was a, actually based on one of his short novellas. It was in a pack of four. I probably got when I took a plane flight somewhere. But I digress. So Shawshank Redemption's favorite film. I've watched it, I guess, anytime it comes on Netflix or, you know, A&E or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it's not something that, like, I would go to Blockbuster to rent. I don't know. Do you guys even remember Blockbuster? I love Blockbuster. It's more about the experience of going with, like, a date or family and walking the aisles, talking about films, seeing movie posters. I miss that. I would love to go back to that. See? It's so true. And they did a really good job of bringing the experience to you. They would sell you a empty bucket with some air popcorn inside of it like that you could take home and then just like put it in the microwave and it would pop and the idea was that you would sit on your own couch and have this bucket of popcorn that you just made to try to give you the theater experience as well it was fascinating I love that and I feel like maybe you know the attendant at Blockbuster you were friends with and it was like oh you would love this movie I feel like you could build a relationship almost like a bartender but like for movies and he could like prescribe you a movie or something agree so I vote to bring that back <laughs> do you have any favorite LGBT films so you have to realize that when I was coming out they're like the only LGBT film I think that we could access on Betamax or VHS was Desert Hearts. I don't know if you've ever even heard of that. I've seen it. Yeah. Oh, you've seen it? Well, it's, yeah, I mean, I'm making a movie that deals with lesbians. I feel like that's, you know, one of the old ones from, I think I think it was shot, like, in the 80s, like, around the time I might have been born. Yes, I think so. But, you know, I understand, you know, at that time. I mean, I understand even when I was coming out, like, there weren't 
a lot of films, right? So I can't imagine. So just Desert Hearts. So how, how was that uh, experience for you, watching that for the first time? Um, it was uncomfortable in that as much as it was like, oh, my God, like a woman's kissing a woman on the screen. It was also, I, because we had, I had been raised in a heteronormative world, it was jarring to see two women kissing. Did you seek this film out, or did you just happen to watch it, and then you were like, huh, about that? No, I think uh, when I got to college, I got in with a group of gals, and they're all like, oh, you have to rent this movie. So it was one of those things where I had to, like, drive to the neighboring town so nobody would know who I was and, you know, put on a trench coat and, you know, a hat. And I don't, yeah, it was, it was un, I don't remember actually, like, but I do remember being very uncomfortable renting this movie, even though nobody else, like the guy at the uh, blockbuster yeah. was not, you know, looking at me like, oh, really? It was just no biggie. But yeah. it was, for me, very uncomfortable for some reason. I get that. But that's like, I think that's like universal to like whenever you do something for the first time that's kind of embarrassing, whether it's like buying your first like box of tampons or like my training bra, you know, like something like that. And it's just like, Ooh, don't, don't look at me person checking out. Like, <laughs> don't judge me. But yeah, they probably don't care. Yeah. You know, I'm renting it for a friend. <laughs> it's not for me. It's, you know, yeah, it's my friend thinks yeah. she might, you know, but so by that, class. by that time when you, when you did, um, go rent that, did you, were you already questioning your sexuality at that point? No, I think I knew who I was and, th- and that there was a movie about it. It was like, wow. I mean, because I couldn't find a book that wasn't a textbook that was more like connected to psychology and why homosexuality, you know, wasn't a moral issue or deviant. Is there, is there a time of place that you remember having these thoughts starting to come? Like, do you know, like where you were, how old you were, or like what triggered you even thinking Maybe I'm not straight. Oh, um, so I can remember back as like in second grade thinking that I would really love to marry my second grade teacher, but then that would, it was kind of impossible because, hello, I was a seven-year-old girl. So I thought, well, maybe there was like a way I could have a car accident and then they, when they were putting me back together, they couldn't tell I was a woman, so they made me a man. And then I would grow up and I'd be a man so that I could marry a woman. So that was my wow. thinking at seven. That's wild. Yes. So going back to Desert Hearts, you know, I'm just curious, like, um, it, was that a film, I mean, did it help you in, in aiding you to, to be a little more comfortable maybe to come out? I mean, I know you said you were uncomfortable, but, like, did you watch it again? Oh, I think I watched it, like, six times in, in within a 24-hour period. I mean, it was just, like, binge watch. I mean, it was, because I just never seen anything like it before. Um, and then I haven't watched it since, honestly. I, but it was so huge to have had a film that depicted how I felt inside. Yeah, that's amazing. That's really, honestly, what we're trying to do with this film. And I know when Shelley and I met, and she spoke about the idea of this film, which, by the way, for those listening, this is how the person, the the rabbi that we've we've spoken about, who introduced us. Um, and when Shelley and I met, um, we she she spoke about this film, and I was like, wow, I really wish I would have had something like this when I was coming out. Because even when I came out, it was I was eighteen. It was two thousand four or five, and it was still slim pickings. And the movies that were out there, the quality wasn't great. The acting wasn't great. You know, the product. You know, it was it was just not great. 
And so I was like, let me help you guys. And so, you know, that's a long time coming. I had to go through a lot of things of being okay with this to finally get to where we're at now. But I hope, and my hope is that with this film, we can give people something like what this gave you. Not to get too personal, but did you date guys? And was that uncomfortable? When did you know for sure and have the courageousness and boldness to be like, hmm, I think I'm going to try something else? You have to remember, I came out back in 1986, which was a long time ago. Before I was born. I was born in 86. Okay, there you go. That's right. Um, So, uh, and there was just nothing. And it was very long. There was no internet. There was no Ellen DeGeneres. I mean, it was the overall idea of being gay meant that you were a pedophile. I mean, that was what homosexuality meant back in the dark ages that I call it. And it's taboo. It was very taboo. Although because I was on a college campus, it was a little trendy. Now it was trendy to be bi. Mm. So I thought, well, I'll be bi and I will date men and women. And that would make me, you know, alluring and mysterious. But I didn't consider myself bi because I understood that I was gay, but I was just using men for a cover. But by definition, I was with both so therefore I guess I was technically but I don't know but as I said I knew once I came out to myself what I was and I knew and then I had the internal struggle for the next six years from the time I was 18 to the time I was 24 of dating both Mm. trying to see if I could find somebody that I could just hide behind when I was 24 the last boyfriend I had broke up with me and I had to confront the idea that it was not fair of me to use a person to try to make me okay for society. But it also set me into a journey of celibacy for two years that I was not willing to use another person until I really knew who I was and that I could really feel integrated to have the integrity to say, this is who I am. I would have to say that I came out again back in 1994, so from 86 to 94 was my struggle and then in 94 I met my partner and we've been together ever since it's what 28 years now wow that's incredible how did you know that she was the one I don't know that I knew she was the one at first I met her and we became very good friends and we just enjoyed spending time together it was kind of one of those things where one day she just looked at me and she kind of hit me over the head with a two by four and said am I chopped liver what about me At the time, she wasn't Jewish. Well, you know, I never imagined myself with, I had to be with a Jewish person because I was going to become a rabbi. So I said, well, would you ever consider becoming Jewish? So she said she'd consider it. I heard what I wanted to hear. So the next thing, I called my mom and said, Jane's becoming Jewish. But she only said she'd consider it. Well, how was (laughs) telling your parents then? So my parents have known since I was 18. Wow. And then they watched me just struggle. It was hard for them. It's sort of watching a butterfly coming out of a chrysalis, just back and forth, struggle, struggle. And my parents had to sit on the sidelines and not say a word, not say a word when I was dating men, not say a word when I, you know, when I bring home somebody, they'd be like, yeah, not this person. And they just, they kept their mouth shut. And then I brought Jane to meet them. And they just said to me, Jane's great. What, what's your problem? So there wasn't any resistance from your parents? Oh, there was tremendous resistance when I was 18. But because they'd watched me struggle, they got to a point where they just said, we'd rather have a happy, healthy person who's clearly in love with Jane and happy 
than for me to be lying and trying to make them happy. I love that. Well, what do you think makes a healthy, lasting relationship? You guys are a testament to that for sure. This is like the age of divorces. So I'm wondering in like a time when people are so afraid to commit and have an intimate relationship, what do you think that secret is? You have to be willing to compromise. What kinds of things would you say come up? Many years ago, one of my biggest complaints, if you will, about Jane was she didn't wash the dishes. So I was <laughs> complaining about it to a friend of mine. And I was like, she doesn't do the dishes. I have to do the dishes, all that. And she'll eventually get to the dishes if I let them stay in there a day or two and she's darn good and ready. But I need the dishes done by the end of the day or I can't go to sleep. Sure. Not sure. That's okay. Anyway, <laughs> um, so I said this to my friend and my friend said, you know, that's not a reason to break up with someone. That's like a roommate problem. You could have that problem with a roommate. That's just a complaint about someone. And, and I realized, like, if it makes me happy to have the dishes done, then I need to wash the dishes and stop making her wrong for not washing them. Like, yeah. she'll do the laundry. So that was the compromise was, hey, I'll, I'll do the dishes every day, but you're, you're going to do laundry. And, and it was fine. So it was win-win. I always feel like there are little things you think about when you're not sure about someone. Like, oh, they do this weird thing with their hands or like, do they smell weird? Just like those little weird things that it's like, does it really matter or do you just not really like them? Like, what are the things you're willing to put up with to be with that person? You know, if the love is strong enough, then you'll let them be super weird, I'm sure. Versus if you like barely like them, you're like, no, nah, they did that thing this one time, so they're done. So it's interesting, like, what we'll put up with versus what we, like, neglect and we're like, no, they're amazing and all of their weirdness. Yeah, I think that you want to get to that they're amazing and all of their weirdness before you put a ring on it. Yeah. Because 30, was it, 20-something, 20 28 years ago, I felt like this is the person I want to wake up next to every day, and I still feel that way today. That's so beautiful. I love that. Having the bravery to come out and admit that you are in the minority is one thing but there are a lot of other transitions in life that happen whether you are changing careers or changing relationships or deciding to go you know study something anytime that I think we're reframing our identity that someone views us as is difficult so what are some other points in your life where you pretty much went from one box to another box, basically like you took off a hat or a role that you were playing and you stepped into another. Yeah, that's, um. listen, I think the biggest transition that I made was I went to rabbinical school when I was 30 years old. And I had been a singer-songwriter from the time I was 21, 22 years old. So I had this like identity of struggling singer-songwriter, waitress, professional songwriter. And then I got called to become a rabbi. I mean, it wasn't just like, I think I'm going to become a rabbi. It was like this calling where I didn't really know that I wanted to be a rabbi, but everything was taken from me. It was clear I was supposed to do this. But just because it was clear I was supposed to go to rabbinical school didn't mean that I didn't grieve my old life. And I knew I was really going to miss my identity as like mysterious, in my own mind talented, a singer-songwriter working, of course, as a waitress and pizza delivery and, you know, tutor. But in my mind, I was living this artist's life and it was exciting and wonderful and freeing. But as I was getting older, 
it was clear that this was the next direction to go in. And so Jane and I sold everything we owned and we moved to Jerusalem, Israel for me to go to rabbinical school. The first year of rabbinical school, even though it was new and exciting, we were in a foreign country and we were together and it was great, I had a tremendous feeling of grief for the life that I had left behind. Yeah, I know that is difficult. And I feel like this film has a lot to do with living an authentic life and listening to our inside whisper of whatever our gut is telling us. What made it so clear to you to listen to your gut? How did that feel? You said it came to you. Yes. As I said, I was moving along happy in my career as singer-songwriter. And one day I was on my knees scrubbing the bathtub. It was as if it was a voice that came from inside my heart, but it was outside of me at the same time. It was all around me, and it was just this, you should become a rabbi. It was so visceral that I went and I called the bartender of the bar that I was waiting tables at, and I said, you're a minister. You know, had you ever felt that you'd gotten called? Like, I felt this voice say you should become a rabbi and she said I've heard of that happening you're not abnormal go down the path of seeing what it would take for you to become a rabbi and I had to call the school and get the application and do the footwork but it felt this is me it was so clear that this was the next thing for me to do and everybody in my life that I said this is who I am becoming they all went huh yeah like it was this, yeah, you, you've kind of been going in that direction for a long time and unbeknownst to myself. Not only, like I said, is it really rare to be a female rabbi, it's very rare. I've never heard of someone that was a queer rabbi. It's very unique that you chose that path and that you came into that or it shows you, as you said. And I think it's incredible that you got to go to Jerusalem because that's where my mom was born and, and live there and study. And I think that's so special. Is anyone else in your family a rabbi? Did you grow up really religious? None of the above. Wow. Yeah, it was pretty wow for my family. They were all like, does this mean we have to go to services now? Like they were just like, ooh, that's so <laughs> not, you know. And that on the other hand, they really saw it as, sure, why not? This is, I've always been Jewish. I kind of grew up through the Jewish summer camps and going to religious school. So it wasn't too far out of the ordinary. It wasn't like mm -hmm. I was an evangelical Christian who became Jewish and, you know, no, nothing yeah. like that. It was, but here's something that's really interesting. When I was in rabbinical school, I was seized with a feeling of not being good enough. Mm. And what it caused me to do in school was that I felt, whether this is true or not, that because I was gay, it was going to be harder for me to get a job. So that I had to be twice as good as my heteronormative counterparts in order to be as good. Yeah. So I not only, because I had a background as a professional singer-songwriter, I also went and got a master's degree in education so that I could not only be a rabbi, but I could be a rabbi, a cantor, and an educator, all rolled into one package. I love that. I was just thinking if maybe you met someone that was a cantor that really inspired you, or if you decided this is a way I can still do my music and be in the religion that I love. Yes, all of those things. So when I was in Nashville, Tennessee, the person who hired me for the religious school, she was an educator and her husband was the cantor of the temple in Nashville. So they were very inspirational in my decision 
to become a rabbi because they said, you have this background as a teacher and as a singer, go get an ordination and you'll be a triple threat. But as I said, I wasn't sure how I was going to be received in the workplace being an openly gay rabbi. So having that feeling, when you did start applying to places, did you have anyone that had apprehension? Were there closed doors? Or was it you being harder on yourself than what actually happened? A little of both. Definitely me being harder on myself and having an old idea of having to be twice as good to be just good enough or as good as. Mm -hmm. But the other thing was I had an experience of being the student rabbi in Kokomo, Indiana. Kokomo, Indiana is the town next to the town where Ryan White was not allowed to go to school during the AIDS crisis in the 80s. You probably don't remember who this is, but this was a student who had contracted AIDS through a blood transfusion when he was a young boy, and he wasn't allowed to go to school because of all the distrust of what if he scratches another child or licks a child or, you know, so they just wouldn't even let him go to school. So this is the environment that I was now becoming the rabbi in. And they let me know that they didn't like my kind in their town. So did you grow up in Indiana? No, no. I just was serving this community. I'm originally from New York, from Ardsley, New York. Very cool. And did you ever want to go back there? or What led you to Chicago? I love being from New York. I just haven't really had any good reason to go back. I love it. But my parents moved to Florida. It's the 11th commandment. When you're Jewish, thou shalt you know, move to Florida. <laughs> But because I went to Nashville, so I went from being upstate New York or right outside the New York City and then school in upstate New York, I moved to Nashville, Tennessee, which going from New York to Nashville was quite a culture shock. But Nashville pretty much beat the New York out of me. And then when I went to rabbinical school, because my partner's from Ohio, we went to the rabbinical school in Ohio. And then we had been in the middle of the country for as long as we had been, I'm like, why would I go to either coast? Let me try to stay in the Midwest. And it was a risk to come to this community. But they sent a letter out introducing my partner and I. We had a 15-month-old son. There was one family that left the congregation because we were coming. Sure. And everybody else embraced us, and we've been here ever since. Wow. That's amazing. Do you remember what year you came here? In 2005. I was in junior high. I was one year out of high school. That's wild. And I just remembered what I thought earlier. I think it's really special that you guys were friends first, you and your partner, because I feel like nowadays dating works very strangely. You like almost commit to someone by swiping right on them in like a dating app. And I feel like it's a lot easier to find someone in the queer community because we have dating apps versus you don't know like who's gay, who's not. I don't even know if your partner was queer before she met you or if you guys were just great friends and then she was like, "Mm, I kind of like you, like, let's try this. It is really important to be friends first and things are kind of backwards dating in today's society versus a way that you think works better. But I really like that way of doing it. Yes, I don't envy the younger generation. I think we had it much easier before the electronics and you had to actually talk to people. My son, when he was younger, said to me, Mom, I I want a phone. And I said, okay, honey, um, why do you want a phone? And he said, because I want to be able to talk to girls. And he didn't mean talk to them. He meant, like, text them. Like, that was that's how kids talk to each other. They don't talk directly to each other. Like I said, why don't you just talk to them? No, you can't do that. You have to text them. 
so interesting. It's fascinating. So different. Yeah. So different. And there's like so much different jargon now. Someone was just telling me that person is sus. And I was like, what does that mean? Oh, like, you've, what you've never what? played Among Us? What's wrong with you? <laughs> I was like, what are you saying? It's like yeah. saucy? What? Sus, yeah. yes. And so I'm like learning new jargon. Yes. And I thought, now yes. I feel old. No, that was the moment my sister and I, my niece and nephew, we were playing Among Us. Of course. And, you know, they were introducing me to the game. And I was like, and they're like, you're sus. And I'm like, what is that? My sister and I looked at each other like, what does that mean? And then it was in that moment my sister and I looked at each other. We both knew. <gasps> We're old. We're old now. <laughs> we are those people. We don't know That's these so like funny. hip terms, you know. And and it was kind of a, a bittersweet moment, but that's okay. We Get have a dictionary at yeah. least. <laughs> yeah. I don't agree with shortening everything. It's just lazy. It takes like longer to look something up and then like do the abbreviation. Just like say the word. Just might say be a little it. biased there as a writer. Just saying. <laughs> but I digress. <laughs> Going back to you saying that you you guys had a kid together, and I know you have twins as well. Um, I feel like that probably wasn't the easiest thing to do. How did you navigate that? Did you both want kids? Did someone initiate this? What was that process like? And of course, if you don't want to share that, you don't have to. No, it's a great story. I was a drummer in a band, and I went to Jane and I said, I need to buy a minivan so I could transport my drums because my drum collection was, you know, getting much bigger and I, in a small car, this wasn't working too well. And she said, why don't we get a minivan so we can fill it with kids? And it was at the first time that I really heard her say that, like she'd been saying to, for years, I want to have a baby, I want to have a baby. But I thought, well, if I can have drums, you can have a baby. So I said, yes, let's do it. And then we're like, oh, wait a minute, how do you, how do you have a baby when you're two women? And it was around the same time that um, a dear friend of mine had passed away. Uh, she had We'd gone to college together, and I had gotten back in touch with my college friends. And one friend in particular had the experience of having a baby with her partner. So I reached out to her, and she said, I can help you navigate this. So she said, don't go through. Just start with a fertility endocrinologist. Like, start with a fertility doctor. Don't start at a doctor. And she said, cut to the quick. And... The experience was Jane wanted to have the baby. So we went to the doctor. He said, yes, we can do this. We chose the specimen from the cryobank. We went through the doctor. And on the second attempt, Jane was pregnant. And yeah. that's how we thought, oh, that's what they tell you. You know, when you're 16, yeah. you have to be very careful because you're going to get pregnant immediately. Yeah. But Jane was 40 when she got pregnant. Wow. On her first, yeah. So she had the baby nine months of bliss and then we had a healthy boy and it was delicious and wonderful and I just thought that's how it was going to happen so after we had our first child I was like oh my god I love being a mom let's have more babies and she said great but I don't want to have any more I'm 41 I'm tired why don't you try so I'm expecting to have the same experience she had go to the doctor first try no problem and I endured five years of infertility between the time of our first son and the time I got pregnant with the twins. And it was a very lonely time because, again, not a lot on the Internet about infertility, especially for gay women. You know, my sister would say to me, oh, don't worry, just relax, and you guys will be okay. I'm like, no, I can't relax. Like, it's not like it's just going to organically happen. Like, sure. you know, heterosexual couples can relax, and eventually it'll happen, maybe. Gay women, it's very intentional. So one of the things that we tell our children is... You are not here by accident. We really, really, really wanted you. 
love that. Are you that much younger than your partner then? No, I was 42 when I had my twins. Oh, wow. But yeah. you are a bit younger than I her. am a bit younger. That's why she looked to me. She said, the womb is closed. It's your turn. Good luck. Well, that's a good testament that you can have kids after 40 because in my eyes, I'm like, okay, 35 is the like limit for me. I want healthy kids, so I'm scared past 35. So that's good to know. I've even heard of like some different ways of doing it now where you can take like the egg of your partner and have it implanted in you. So kind of everyone gets gets part of the party. <laughs> that is correct. I don't know anyone that's done it, but it's cool information. I feel you with the infertility. My mom had eight years of struggle having kids and she tried in vitro, didn't work. My mom and dad are about eight years apart, and my mom passed. She's no longer here. I don't know if it had to do with her being slightly more ill. I'm not sure, but she was infertile for a long time. And yeah, they did infertility. They did the like IVF multiple times, didn't work, and it was like super expensive, and I think she probably hated the hormones and stuff. So she went back to Israel and had a conversation with her cousin who was some type of shaman or magician like that everyone in the village looked to. And like my mom kind of grew up on a kibbutz, so she was kind of out there herself. He gave her this special powder. It was like some white powder. I don't know what it was, and I don't know if it's a placebo, but he's like, take this back to America with you and try again. So basically a week later, she was pregnant with my brother. And then I'm two and a half years younger than my brother. I don't know how I came out, but I feel like my parents raised me saying me and my brother were magic babies because it was a magic powder that she got. And I was like, I don't know how that happened, but it's cool. I don't know if we were supposed to be here or not because like she had such a struggle with it. But yeah, so infertility, best stories. <laughs> I feel like you're right. You really have to want to have a kid and have that resilience. So I'm glad that you were able to and that you have your three babies. Me too. Let's see what other fun questions do we have for you today. Let's see here. I think I've asked the majority of these. So the ability to not care what other people think comes into play with being bold enough to walk a path less paved, which we've kind of talked about. Where else in your life have you danced to the beat of your own drum? You know, it's interesting because I joke, I teach 13-year-olds and 7th grade, and I joke with them that I was bullied when I was that age, maybe because my hair was dark or, you know, I was tall. And I mean, kids will bully you for any reason, and it's how you come back from it that defines who you are and how you do. And I ended up becoming like friends with all the bullies. I mean, just one of those things that that's how I overcame it was through humor and through friending people. And yet I find that I feel that I was like emotionally stunted at 13 years old and that I'm still, even though I've been then 40 years since that time, still healing that time of growing up. And that's why I work with 13 year olds because it's such a hard age to be. And one of the things that I teach them is if you can embrace your inner nerd and just be who you are and not care what other people think, then you're free. And nobody has power over you because you just are who you are. And they say, well, you're being blah, blah, blah. And you say, yeah, I am. And continue on. There's nothing anyone can say. I think for me, the journey that I have to walk is my willingness to not take on other people's discomfort. Mm. It's a hard journey, 
but I remember making this decision that because I could be with men, I could have used some poor guy to cover who I really was and satisfied the outside of people I didn't really know or care about, or I could be who I was and love who I wanted to love, and yeah, I wouldn't get people's approval, but so what? That really hits home. I feel like that is Molly. She just doesn't want to rock the boat, and she cares so much about what people think, and she doesn't want to lose her friend. She doesn't want to lose her love from her mom, and she's very worried about what people think and, like, this coming into the real life. So that's a really strong way to look at it. I also think, too, you know, with Molly and, like, with, you know, like what you're talking about, you kind of have grown since then or you know I'm, not, I'm just assuming right you know I didn't know you back then but you've grown from that time and maybe you're healing a part of yourself by giving to these kids which I feel like for me a lot of healing is actually giving you know it's like I get out of the way to make space for it to come in and be healed without me having to really do too much about it and with Molly there's this character arc in this story where she starts to let go of that. And you'll see that throughout the film, this transition of her through camera language, through production design, through wardrobe, through just all of these different things where, you know, she kind of comes to herself, which I think is an amazing thing to just finding your, your true authenticity, which not for the faint of heart. The last question I have for you today has to do with basically what you do now. And you wear a lot of hats. You're a partner, you're a rabbi to this wonderful community. You have kids, so you're a mom. I'm sure that you're a daughter, and I don't know how many siblings you have, but you have a lot of hats. And with that comes some overwhelm sometimes because people might be pulling you in multiple directions. I would love to get some advice from you of what you do to kind of clear your channel and reconnect to yourself because I feel like when we're pulled in multiple directions usually it's because someone else's needs or desires from you and there's like a difference of like oh I have to do that versus I want to do that like what do you want so what do you do to reconnect to yourself whether it's taking a vacation or meditating like what advice can you give to someone else to kind of just like listen to what you want versus trying to like appease other people great question um and i'd have to say that the the best advice that i was given was being taught how to use breath as a way to calm myself down and to really pause and breathe and not just react to what somebody else wants from me but to really take time to take some deep breaths and make sure that what I'm about to transition into doing, whether it's to run off and help my kids do something or to run off and you know help someone else, is this, am I bringing the best possible person to whatever it is I'm going to do? And if I need half an hour of downtime, I can say, I will be there in a half an hour, but for this half an hour, I'm gonna take for me just to sit, because if I'm not good for myself, it's hard to show up for other people. So the most important thing is to take care of me so that I can go off and help others. It's sort of the idea of the oxygen mask on the airplane that they always tell you, the flight attendants, to put your mask on before you put it on your children. It only takes a few seconds to take that time to put it on yourself first. And then you're good, you have the air, you can put it on your child. 
and that's how I feel about my life. In order to be able to wear those hats, I have to take care of me first because without the me, there are no hats. There's nothing to put the hat on. I love that. There's a saying that I really like that goes with that. It's called feel good, do good. And it's similar to the oxygen thing. And it's true. Like if we feel good, if we feel our best, and when I say that, I mean taking care of our health, getting enough sleep, or maybe it's educating ourselves so we can use that knowledge to help other people with, or basically just having an excuse to give yourself time, whether it's learning something, providing for your health, providing, you know, something that you feel guilty maybe about being selfish, but you're not because you're going to use whatever that is to give to your community and people around you that you love, your family and, and whatnot. So I'm really glad that you, you said that. Thank you. Any other words from the director, Miss Dina? Any other questions or things we want to put out there? This is, this is the time. You put me on the spot. Yes. I think we pretty much covered like a good amount. I like how we've tied it back to the film. I think at the end of the day, I'm just, I'm, I'm very excited to be doing this film. I am very excited to be doing this film because this has uh, been a long time coming and a dream of mine since I've come out. And, you know, to open this platform, we don't want this film to just be a film. We want it to be a movement. We want to change the narrative in, you know, LGBT content and just, you know, start to make it in a world where there's okay, it's okay, there's no homophobia, there's no, you know, anything like that. Uh, much like in Schitt's Creek, what Dan Levy did, which I was just so refreshing to not have it be some huge dramatic thing, you know, and, and, and what I was saying before, we, I was watching... Um, Queer Eye. Queer Eye, thank you. <laughs> and um, there's this, uh, which if you haven't seen, is a wonderful reality show, probably the best reality show I've ever had or seen. And there are five uh, gay men, and they, you know, help these people, right? And there's one uh, one of the guys, Karamo, said he doesn't, like, subscribe to the idea of coming out, but it's more about letting people in. And I loved that because I don't have to come out it's not me coming out anyway. It's this vulnerable moment, and there's a vulnerable moment in the film that, to me, is one of the most important moments in the film because it is this character finally letting down her walls and allowing people in to see who she is, which is scary, but it's also so amazing to really, truly feel and live life. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very exciting thing, and I don't know exactly where I was going with that, so I hope that made sense, but... Yeah, just very excited to be a part of, you know, creating this. And thanks so much for being with us today. Because we wouldn't be here without you. <laughs> and that's kind of a fun thing. So thank you yeah. for, uh, for making the connection. You bet. Well, we will wrap this up. Thank you both for being here. Podcast number four, over and out. <laughs>